there's a difference between believing and knowing. It was the wrong diagnosis. What does the evidence tell us? Why do we need evidence-based health care? A diagnosis that could have cost her her life. Welcome to the Show Me the Evidence podcast. I'm Nathan Edmondson, and I'm here with, uh, who am I here with? This is Aaron Davis. <laughs> and we're uh, founders and producers of Real Night Productions. And our third member is... Dr. Todd Feynman. Call me Todd today, and I am CMO founder of The Cure and Dr. Evans. And today we're excited to have congressional candidate Matt Miller on the show. He's going to talk about his views on health care and about his campaign in Washington. And Todd and him are going to talk in front of a little group of people that we have here at Dr. Evidence. But first we want to talk about Ebola because we hit upon that in our last podcast. Yeah, so Ebola. I mean, it's pretty, pretty scary. I mean, if you turn on the news, it's just fear, fear, fear. I mean... What there was first it was one patient and then the next thing you know a nurse has it and I think a second nurse was just um, and diagnosed and they're getting on flights yeah now? and they're on flights I, I was watching a segment it was um, a, a news reporter I think she was a doctor who was in West Africa reporting and doing research and she was under quarantine when she returned and her crew and she was out having dinner in Jersey yeah of all the people who should be taking this seriously it seems like it's being taken very seriously and a lot of fear-mongering, and then these things are happening. I don't know, I like, feel like there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. My first question, if we have an answer to it, is how, how do you get it? How, do, how does somebody with Ebola give it to somebody who doesn't have Ebola, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. How so is it, how is it transmitted? How is it spread? Yeah. Every night I'm seeing experts on TV, including experts from the CDC, telling us the audience how Ebola is transmitted, how it goes from one from a, an infected patient to somebody who's not infected. And what we're hearing is that it's not airborne, that it, the only way you can get Ebola is from close contact. Somehow you have to be exposed to vomit or blood. Um, it has to get into, somehow it's got to get in through your mouth or your eyes or some opening in your skin. Um, they haven't really explained that really well. They have to be actually showing symptoms to be contagious. That's Just like what having a as well. fever or something. That's right. what they so, say. Yeah. That's what they say. And by the way, whenever I say they say, I'm talking about an opinion. It's not evidence. But they say that it has to uh, go from somebody who has symptoms to somebody who obviously doesn't have Ebola. But the real question is, is it true? It, what is the evidence? What is the, where are the clinical trials, the studies that prove that this virus can only be transmitted through fluid transfer, fluid contact, that it's not in the air, or that it doesn't get in some other way? I don't know what the evidence is regarding that, but I do not understand why the experts on TV aren't showing the evidence for transmission, especially given that two nurses who are fully gowned and, and had all the protective clothing on still had contact with the fluids. Well, apparently what I've been hearing is that when the Ebola patients were first brought into certain hospitals, the hospitals didn't know how to handle the quarantine and all the regulations that are set now for Ebola patients for Ebola care. Um, so people were, you know, not using gloves and just doing all kinds of things that um, they're now saying can easily right. spread the disease. So well, they probably had the whatever they knew was the best preparation or the best isolation measures for virus, you know, anything from HIV to tuberculosis um, to what they thought would work for Ebola. But given that two nurses still got it with those protective measures, those protective measures need to be upgraded. They were probably doing the, what was considered the right thing at that moment, but it didn't work. So now there's going to be a new right thing, and hopefully that'll work. But if it doesn't work, then they obviously are clueless about how this virus is transmitted. 
if they're showing symptoms, for example, say, say that you need to be having symptoms, it's a fever, you know, you're sweating, but a lot of things appear like that. So when, right. you, when you, you, know, you come into the hospital, like, oh, I need treatment, like, there's gonna be those few moments where you're dealing with people and you don't know what, the, like, how do you know what the diagnosis, when do you know when the diagnosis is? And all that time, you, maybe you're not being quarantined the way you should be, you know, it could just be the flu. Right, so when, so the first question is, before you mention diagnosis, is when is somebody contagious? When can they actually get you infected? And secondly, when, how do you diagnose an infected patient? So the contagious question begs for evidence. How do they know? They keep saying that you are, that Ebola patient is not contagious until they have symptoms, fever, vomiting, diarrhea, whatever. How do they know that? Where's the evidence behind that? Is there really a study showing that everybody who got infected was previously exposed to somebody who had symptoms? Uh, conversely, is there any evidence that people got infected with Ebola after being exposed to somebody who did not have symptoms? Where is that evidence? That's the evidence that would prove beyond reasonable doubt that you have to have symptoms. Or if that evidence doesn't exist, I don't know how they came to that conclusion. I wonder why there hasn't been more done to well, protect we, people. So we, I just pulled in every article that, every article study review that has the word Ebola in the title. We've pulled in like 1,200 articles. Some of it is review articles, editorials, and some of it are studies. But at first glance, we haven't done a full analysis yet, but at first glance, it doesn't look like there's that many studies that answer the question about transmission, that answer the question about diagnosis, or answer the questions about most effective treatment. There's just not that many studies. You know, I'm not an expert on why there hasn't been a lot of studies. I think that the, the opinions and theories can range from you're dealing with West Africa, it's hard to get in there, the politics, the poverty, you know, uh, just, and it's uh, not a lot of people have been infected over the last 20 years. But there, there is a shortage, a low volume of data, evidence proving beyond a reasonable doubt what the answers to these questions are. So another example is the diagnosis of an Ebola patient. They keep telling us they're doing these blood tests, and they're, they're blood tests regarding the antibodies or virus materials that are found in the blood of infected patients. The audience should be asking, what is the accuracy of these blood tests? How accurate are they? Is it possible that you can have Ebola and have a negative blood test? Is it possible to have a positive blood test and not really have Ebola? When does the blood, if the blood test is accurate, let's say it is accurate, when does the blood test turn positive? After symptoms, before symptoms? Does it depend on the patient's prior medical history, what other diseases they have? Where is that evidence? Why, I don't know why they're not showing us that data. Are there treatments? Well, they, obviously they're treating everybody. Um, they're treating patients in West Africa and they're treating patients in Dallas and in America. It's not clear to me exactly what treatments they're giving. They're obviously giving supportive treatment, you know, fluids and, and, and um, other treatments like that. And they're giving them what they are calling vaccines and plasma exchanges, antibodies from patients who have been cured. And it's, it's unclear what's working and what's not working because no well-designed trial is being done. The only way to prove whether a vaccine or a blood transfusion actually works is to compare patients who got it to patients who didn't and see if there's a difference in survival rates. And there's, you know, I doubt they're doing that trial because they're just throwing everything at everybody and there's no scientific method being conducted right now. So I don't know how they're going to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So in other words, if you have a patient and you give them a vaccine and they live, that doesn't prove the vaccine worked. It just proves that they lived. Maybe they would have lived anyhow. I mean, some patients do live without any 
vaccine treatment. If they give a bl blood transfusion or a plasma exchange and they live, it doesn't prove it works. It, it might have worked, maybe it did work, but until you do a well-designed trial, there's, there's no way to prove beyond a reasonable doubt what's working or what's not working. Yeah, I wonder what the survival rate is, how many people live, how many people Again, die. Again, I, I hope there's a study on that. You know, how many patients, I don't even know if they know how many patients have been diagnosed with Ebola because not Probably everybody's showing not. up, they're not counting everybody. But first you'd have to get an accurate number of people who've been infected and then you'd have to count how many died and how many lived until that study, I don't know if that study's been done. Again, I haven't, I haven't seen any studies on any TV network, Fox News, mm -mm. CNN, Dr. Oz, nobody's showing us any data. President Obama came on TV the other day and I watched his Ebola spiel and nothing. Yeah, no opinions, no opinions, opinions, yeah. opinions, telling us what's the truth. They're telling us what they think the truth is, but nobody's showing us data. Where's the data on transmission? Where's the data on diagnostic testing? Where's the data on treatment? Yeah, it's really scary. Um, it just seems so irresponsible with how easy it is to travel these days and how globalized everything is that they haven't taken Ebola seriously before it became a big problem like yeah. it is now. Yeah, well, the, now anybody who's listened to this uh, podcast should be writing in to the right people and demanding to see the evidence or demanding to create better evidence. Show me the evidence. Yeah, about Ebola. <laughs> All right, so Ebola, I mean, we'll probably touch back on this topic again in the future. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So. Nope, I hope it does go away, but yeah. it, it ain't. <laughs> okay, moving on. So that uh, somehow is gonna segue, segue us into uh, Matt Miller. Yeah. If you don't know who he is, he is a weekly columnist for the Washington Post, co-host and voice of the political center, um, left, right, and center. Um, that's Public Radio's popular political week in review program. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Um, he's written several best-selling books, served as senior advisor at the White House Office in Management and Budget from uh, 1993 to 1995. He's really knowledgeable about what goes on in Washington, D.C., what goes on in politics, um, and has a lot of interesting views on health care, and is running for Congress. And we're uh, pretty excited that he's here, and Dr. Todd is going to uh, Q&A him right now. Thank you, Todd, for having me. One of the reasons I'm running is that we're not addressing the biggest problems the country faces, and I think the macro problem in U.S. domestic and economic policy is our excess health care spend, and that is, uh, you know, diverting resources from every other public and private purpose. So I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the success of what you're trying to do in kind of disruptively changing the quality equation and value equation in health care is one of the most important challenges the country faces. So no pressure in terms of you having to succeed. Um, but I believe I, I want to share how I think about this. But I know I have a lot to learn from a group like this that's on the front lines of doing this. And so I really uh, cherish the opportunity. Healthcare is can be confusing enough, I think, to our political folks. And Washington itself is already mired in a deep confusion that healthcare, you know, the complexity of healthcare only compounds that. Here's how I think about healthcare and the way I talk about it to you know you guys are very expert and you're in the trenches. But the way I talk about it to average voters, to business leaders, to other audiences, um, to me, the fact that we spend twice per person on healthcare, basically, as every other wel wealthy nation on earth, without better outcomes, is one of the critical national problems we face. That's a trillion dollars annually, off the top, straight into the pockets of the medical industrial complex, as I like to call it. Medical industrial complex doesn't like that, and I hear from providers. But I'm also trying to make this something that's accessible to average folks. That's a trillion dollars off the top to that group, and it comes straight out of the pockets of every business, every worker, every taxpayer, every senior in our district here on the west side, but as every household around the country. 
That's about $50 billion a year in the Southland alone nationally of excess spend not related to quality. It amounts to something like an $8,000 tax on every household. And what it does, as you know better than most, is it, um, it siphons off all the money that businesses would otherwise have available for wage increases, because you know in a business, businesses in the US kind of uniquely provide health care. If the health care line is soaring, the wage line has to be flat, because it's coming out of the same pot in a business. And at the same time, in the public sector, the, the spiraling health costs are starving public budgets at the federal, state, and local level of money that's desperately needed for research and development, for infrastructure. We have a huge uh, investment backlog there for uh, things like preschool, for uh, making college more affordable. A whole host of national priorities are being um, hurt by the fact that this trillion dollar a year excess spend on health care, not related to quality, uh, is going on and is not being challenged. So um, to me, and I, I put out a plan that was the best I could come up with for now to show what the direction would sound like if we were serious as a country to do this. You can find it on my website. Maybe some of you have looked at it. I see our logo there. So somebody at least has been doing, <laughs> doing the, doing the pre-reading. Um, but uh, it would start, in my mind, that we should be, you know, if we're, if we're at 17% of GDP, the nearest countries are at 12 or 13, the OECD average is 9% of GDP, mighty Singapore, which I have a fetish about, is at 4% of GDP or less with as good or better health outcomes than we have. We should be benchmarking, benchmarking ourselves against uh, the cost effectiveness of other advanced nations. And so I would say we should challenge the, uh, basically, the entire stakeholder community to get to 13 to 15% of GDP over the next decade. I'd like to say 13, but I know the boomers are retiring. We're going to double the number of people who are senior citizens. So maybe getting to 13, even though that would be generous for every other country on Earth, is too aggressive. But I'm saying 13 to 15 should be our benchmark. We need a presidential commission to kind of lay out what the scenarios would look like and the adjustments required. Underneath that, I think we need serious antitrust enforcement from the federal level, because as I understand it, and again, you guys will know more than I do, but when I talk to experts, it's the local market power of supplier groups, hospitals, uh, specialty practices, all the different supplier groups that accumulate market power so they can jack up prices. And the insurers, while they're, they're, there's a lot of things wrong with the current insurance system, in many ways, they're only a few cents on the national health care dollar, and they're stapling together the bills that they are kind of passing on. And the local market power of these local oligopolies uh, is what's driving up a lot of price. If Teddy Roosevelt were alive today, he'd be going after the health care trust in local markets, and I don't think we do enough of that for various reasons we can discuss. I think we need a big price transparency agenda. Hospital pricing, medical pricing is like opaque and Byzantine by design so that no one can understand what's going on. And you have all these huge anomalies where, you know, colonoscopies can vary four or five X, you know, within a 10-mile radius. Uh, cardiac procedures can be, you know, 125,000 just south of here and 250,000 just east of here. It's, uh, you know, there's kind of no rhyme or reason. I, th I think if the federal government can require auto dealers, you know, and automakers to, you know, report on their mileage and how much gas will cost per year and all these things that consumers ought to know, why shouldn't every hospital and doctor and practice, et cetera, have as a condition of their license to operate clear, understandable prices that people can understand so they can make uh, decisions on? I think there's a defensive medicine aspect to this uh, that, I, that I've included in the plan. And this is the, even though all the experts always tell me that defensive medicine is only a tiny piece of our, you know, trillion dollar a year excess health spend, I actually don't believe it. You know, they show studies that say defensive medicine is a very small piece of it. And every doctor I've ever talked to, when I ask them about how they practice, they're always telling me about how they are ordering tests and procedures out the wazoo because they want to cover themselves. And so 
Uh, I've been attracted to proposals, and the ones I put forward are things like um, offering a safe harbor for, for malpractice for folks who follow evidence-based best practices for their specialty. Maybe it's worth also looking into the kind of specialty courts that they have in bankruptcy law or admiralty law or um, uh, patent law, um, where you have, uh, instead of having the kind of malpractice litigation lottery that's driven by a lot of plaintiff's lawyers, you have specialty courts that make sure that for folks who have serious, uh, or who've been seriously hurt in need of remedy, that happens on a prompt basis, but we don't have this kind of lottery system that the plaintiff's bar works that lets you, um, that, that drives the behavior of doctors and also the malpractice premiums that can be a burden on you know, certain segments of the industry. So that's kind of a piece of where I would like to try and move the conversation. I'm trying to show what it would sound like if we were, if we were serious about the magnitude of the challenges. And yet I know that the stuff I'm offering is only the tip of the iceberg compared to the level of granularity you guys are operating at when you're trying to harness evidence to improve quality and outcomes and value across the, across the value chain. Let me, let, me, let me close off at least these opening remarks by saying the reason I'm optimistic um, in spite of the dysfunction in Washington and you know the big dysfunction, the way I talk about it, the, the spiraling health cost and, and incredible lack of value in healthcare in the U.S. compared to other systems, is the political problem is that every dollar of healthcare waste is somebody's dollar of income. And that's a mega political problem when you're trying to create change in Washington. And we have to be creative and clever about coming up with different incentives, different designs that will harness the power of information and markets to help force changes that the incumbents otherwise are going to resist because they're making their living from that today. And yet, the reason I'm optimistic is all these problems are essentially man-made. There's no foreign power that invaded us that said you have to spend a trillion dollars a year more on health care than, you know, than, than is what's needed for quality care. Uh, we decided to do that through various arrangements we've come to ourselves. No uh, you know, meteor fell from, you know, from the sky and said that we have to fail to educate the bottom half of our workforce in ways that, um, you know, that will leave millions and millions of American children unable to fulfill their God-given potential. Again, these are human arrangements. We didn't intend that result, but they're human arrangements that have brought us here. And things that we've done ourselves, we can choose to take a different path. And I think the path forward starts with a set of ideas, and you guys in healthcare can be leaders in that, that, that uh, begin to gain consensus, that inform sound policy, and that change the way we actually do things. And when we do that, we can, um, you know, we can free up resources that are needed so essentially in other parts of the economy give people better health care and better health outcomes, so this is win-win all the way around. If we get our act together and begin to think differently, and you guys in healthcare are on the front lines of that, we can renew America's promise in a way that means our best days remain ahead of us, and not just for a handful at the top, but for, but for the country more broadly. I think you successfully covered all the problems that are occurring in healthcare, which has put us in this trillion dollar spend, but we're last place close to last place in quality and all of that. One of the problems that I agree is completely leading to an overspend in healthcare is defensive medicine. So I was a doctor, I managed 80 doctors, ran two hospitals, I dealt with defensive medicine every day. I saw doctors ordering tests and treatments because they, did, they thought it would keep them out of court, um, you know, following standard of care so they would you know, stay out of court, things like that, and you just saw unnecessary tests and treatments being ordered. One of the solutions that I always thought would cure that problem, to complete tort reform, 
would be the use of evidence. So what happens in the real world is if a doctor doesn't orders the wrong test or treatment, he gets sued. And what they'll do is they'll say, you, by not ordering that test or treatment, you caused that bad outcome in the patient, causation. And you have to also prove they deviated from standard of care. But even if you deviate from standard of care but didn't cause that bad problem, they can't sue you. So, or they can't successfully sue you, supposedly. So the solution, I think, is to force the tort system to use evidence to determine causation and mm. standard of care. Right now, the system relies on testimony from experts. All you have to do is hire an uh, expert doctor to go to court and say, Dr. Feynman ordered the wrong treatment, and that's why the patient died or had a bad outcome. And if you get, and it's, a, it's basically hired guns, they call them. I'm against, sides, yeah, the right. defense hires their guns, and the plaintiffs hire their guns, and see which side the jury believes, and that's how you lose or win. But if you actually used evidence, data to determine causation or standard of care, a lot of that would not go on, and, and the, the doctors who order the right treatments wouldn't get in trouble, and the doctors who order the wrong ones would. So w how do you feel about you know, creating legislature or an agenda around that the court system has to rely more on data evidence as opposed to expert testimony? You know, well, that's, I mean, the, the, it, that sounds similar in spirit to the idea I mentioned where you create some safe harbor for doctors so that if they followed evidence-based best practice for their specialty, mm -hmm. then they, are, they can't be found right. liable. And whether that's through the traditional court system or a separate court system that was more expert, like the Admiralty Bankruptcy Patent Law thing we set right. up, um, that, that sounds like a promising direction. Because it does seem now like it is this dueling expert right. thing, and then it's whoever can sell the jury, and then they have kind of random award levels right. that jack up all this stuff. So that, that to me seems like a promising direction. So if a doctor follows evidence-based guidelines, but in addition, I'd want a law or something that forces the experts to use evidence. They can't go to court. They can't go testify unless they have data from clinical studies supporting their claim that what he did, that doctor did, was wrong mm -hmm. and caused that bad outcome. Or data showing whether or not he deviated from standard of care. Mm -hmm. that, do you think that's possible? Do you think the, the world would ever, the, the US legislature or the court system would ever sure. for Sure, why, why yeah. not? I mean, yeah. if, we, uh, if you propose it and work for it, yeah, that, okay. I think that seems promising. Okay. What are you going to do to stop the industry from doctors, patients, everybody from ordering treatments that have no evidence or there's no evidence supporting efficacy over something that's cheaper? I don't know the answer, but I'd like to figure out the answer. It's funny, there was a, in my consulting life, this is probably around 2006 or 2007, there was the head of uh, human re or healthcare benefits at one of our major companies, I won't say who. And you know this, this evidence-based movement has been around for a while, kind of, it, it was in its earlier stage then. And this person said his basic proposal, because the healthcare cost line kept going up, you know, as all companies are dealing with, and he said, we should just change a policy that we will only reimburse for evidence-based care. But that's, a ra that's so <laughs> radical, it would mean that you know, all our employees would find that half the stuff they're doing wouldn't get reimbursed for, but I think the conversation has to start that way. What is the way to operationalize that? I mean, I'm, uh, let me ask you, what's the way to operationalize that for, it's got to be all the big payers who do this, right? And that means business and government. And so, individuals to some extent, but business and government adopting a policy like that would obviously be huge, but it has to be in a way that, um, what's the right way to put it? You can't, you can't leave um, the individual who didn't know that they're getting kind of, uh, uh, you know, being fooled is the wrong word, but they're getting, they're being offered 
non-evidence-based right. care, they can't be left just holding the right. bag. There has to be a way to, to do it that doesn't leave right. them exposed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, your question is the reason we exist. So right. Sweet. And it's interesting that this guy yeah. was raising this right. years ago and was viewed as obviously this radical who could, you know, threaten yeah. the entire company. Well, we, <laughs> I, I've, talked, I've talked with my team about that there should be two insurance plans. Plan A is significantly cheaper, but you only get treatments that have evidence supporting efficacy. Plan B is much more expensive. You get any treatment your doctor orders, right? Well, that's interesting. Yeah, just do that. And I, you know, some people would say, well, I want to do experimental treatments. I want to follow my doctor. You're going to pay more for that. You got to pay for that. But if you do the w plan where you only get the treatments that have evidence supporting efficacy, it's a lot cheaper. And the reason it's cheaper is because the system would spend a lot less money because <coughs> you wouldn't be ordering drugs or devices that don't work. And you, the wrong, we've already proven. This company has already proven that ordering the wrong test or treatment costs more than ordering the right one. Right, right. We've done hundreds of patient projects over the years where patients all over the world call us. We do custom evidence projects, and they use that evidence to avoid an unnecessary treatment, to get a cheaper treatment, to get um, to avoid the wrong diagnosis, things like that. So we've we've already saved the systems ten saved the system tens of millions of dollars. So we know it works. How would you operationalize it? How would you get it into the system? One is I think that Obamacare or ACA or somebody, congressman, somebody, you know, that the system has to say, look, we are not going to reimburse unless there's evidence and go to this database to see the evidence. Go right. take this evidence to your doctor. And if it shows that there's three treatment options, you have to do you you can you have to do the one that is the most effective, so the risk-benefit sure. ratio. You know, you discuss it with your doctor, but there's no evidence supporting the one he's recommended. We're not going to reimburse it. Well, what about uh, just brainstorming here? Like, if you had a few, I mean, a lot of the big companies self-insure, right? So they could themselves decide to offer plan designs that right. included these two things, right? right? That's what my CEO Does anybody do that? Do. Yeah, well, that my CEO has been talking to payers about that, or Be employers about that, like GM, or people say, look, you're self-insured. Use evidence. Control your own costs. And do, and, and they, do it. I, 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 they haven't. They developed their, they are doing it to some degree. They developed their own internal guidelines. But it's not really evidence-based. They hire experts. It's but, not being done right. But it would, it would be interesting if you could find a few firms that sort of got it that would want to model it and you could do it in a way that wouldn't pose, um, what am I thinking, it's like it wouldn't pose PR risk to the company. Instead right. they'd be hailed as at the vanguard of trying to, you know, trying to address this stuff. And my guess is, my guess is a likely, um, if you were segmenting your targets for who to approach on this, it's retailers and other low margin businesses mm -hmm. because it's where the profit per employee is low. Yeah that the health cost thing becomes mm. a, a board issue right. sooner rather than later. In other words, for Microsoft or a lot of these tech firms, their margins are so high and their profit right. per employee is so high right. that even if they don't like what's happening to the health cost line, right. it's not the same level issue for them. Right. Man, retail guys with 3% margins, that's why the guy who ran Safeway, he may still run it, um, Steve Bird, is that his name? He was like a leader in, they're based somewhere in Northern California, yeah. was a leader in pushing kind of wellness and this other stuff is another angle in to try and right. reduce healthcare costs because when your margins are so thin and your profit per employee is so thin, the healthcare cost is an issue for you. It's a much bigger chunk of your right. profitability than for the guys for whom it's an annoyance, but it's not. Right. And my guess is there'd be ways to find, I mean, it was a retail company that mentioned this to me, like a right. major retail yeah. company. Uh, I don't want to expose them, 
but uh, we should call him. Yeah, I mean, it's we'll a, it, it, it's the um, yeah. I'm really here for Biz Dev. That's yeah. my that's my right. that's my purpose today. Um, but that's it. I mean, why shouldn't why why shouldn't there be some industry leaders you know where CEOs got it and the HR department got it that would say we're going to offer these things and see what the response was? Is there enough yeah. that you could do like full benefit plans based on evidence-based stuff oh, yeah. that people would? Uh, there's would there's, be really no, there's no test or treatment out there that's currently being prescribed by a doctor that doesn't have some, some. evidence. So the evidence could be crappy, it could be golden, it could be there's right. a, but but where there where there is a test or treatment being ordered where there's no evidence or the evidence doesn't show it's effective or more effective than something else, you just turn those off. You just don't reimburse right. for the, you just right now that there's nothing in place. You can't even right now there's nothing in place to discourage the ordering of it, let alone so you're not going to right. Yeah. So right now it's total. The reason I truly believe the reason the costs are out of control, the reason costs are out of control, quality is going down, is because the system is using evidence-based medicine as opposed to evidence. You got to use the data. Evidence-based medicine is some expert critically analyzing the evidence and telling the world what he thinks or that you know mm -hmm. group of experts think you should do, and that's called a you know and that's a guideline that's a review mm -hmm. article a guideline a you know practice management book and those guide those guidelines that are out there right now are corrupted they're full of errors they're oh. they have, they're old they're not being done right which is we're actually entering into that business now where we we're trying to get more evidence the right evidence the right data into that guideline oh. system but i think it's it should go beyond that it should be you should sit down the doctor and the patient should sit down with the actual data so if you if you have an aneurysm, you compare you know, the, the different graphs. There's four graphs available. See which one has the best survival rate. You know, see which graph has the lowest rate of leakage or infections or, mm -hmm. or you know, some other surgical procedure and pick the one that has the best outcomes as opposed to picking the one that, like you said, that hospital system got a rebate on. Mm -hmm. And then you would have fewer bad outcomes, fewer, you, know, uh, you would spend less money on the bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. The state of New York actually has a law in place where cardiothoracic surgeons have to give up their data into this public database. So you can go in there and say, Dr. Goldberg worked, operated on 100 Last open year. heart surgeries, and the, this was, the average patient's age was mm -hmm. this, and this was the comorbidities, and 30% and died at one year, 20% mm -hmm. had a reoperation. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives the data, and you right. can go in and, like Consumer Reports, right. you can pick your be the best surgeon based on their data. It's a law in New York question is, you know, what's your position on making that a law in California that doctors who do invasive procedures give up their data? Sounds sensible to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the king of California, and I'm running for a federal office, but that kind of transparency seems to make... What are they, so they, and they bellyache, so the doctors oppose it because they, you know, you, you don't understand, the case mix is different, so you can't really, it's apples and oranges, and if the public sees that, They'll, you know, they'll misjudge that, you know, I'm, I'm actually a good surgeon because my cases are more difficult, and that's why half of them died, you know, blah blah blah. They um, do. They did bellyache about that in the beginning. I followed that they case. With, now they but, live now, with it. but they risk strat. They do it right. They mm -hmm. risk stratified. You can see. Oh, that's good. You could see. Okay, well, this this doctor operated on older patients. This doctor operated on right. younger patients. You know, you can you can compare based on the patient profile. And and they're that's not. I don't know if they're bellyaching anymore. It's it's a successful program. That seems sensible. Yeah. yeah it's just hard seems to like get. it should apply to other things. Is that something that the Congress put, can push through? Or Probably. Is that I mean, if you've got Medicare to do it, 
If you got Medicare, I mean, if you wanted to be eligible for Medicare reimbursement, you had to do X, Y, and Z. That's a pretty powerful lever. And mm. most providers want to be eligible for Medicare reimbursement. So, so Medicare could, so Congress, could, Medicaid, Congress the, I mean, could make that happen through forcing Medicare. Sure. Or Medicaid. I mean, okay. there's huge sums of federal dollars going into health care, and I assume that there's certain conditions people have to uh, have to comply with in order to be eligible to receive them. So okay. um, I'm sure there's risk of going overboard on that, but there's the power of the purse is enormous in terms of that funding. Huh, so that would be the way to go. I, mean, I haven't thought okay. through the design of it, but it certainly seems like if you wanted to do it, it would probably be part of a broader transparency agenda that you try and promote through changes in Medicare. Is there a reason, like every time I hear politicians, whether it's running for local or federal or state offices, they rarely talk about the evidence behind their positions, whether it's about fracking, climate change, health care, you know, any public health issue. I rarely hear them refer, they always give their opinions about what position they take on something, but they rarely provide the data, the evidence supporting, you know, their position. You know what I'm saying? It just says, it's, we're being become a, an as we've talked about, you addicted to opinions as right. opposed to addicted to data or truth, evidence, facts. Why is that going on at the political level? You know, um, it's a, it could be a combination of the personal tendencies of the particular people. It could be a combination of who's funding them. And I mean, why do we have climate denialism going on now in a right. huge part of the country when I think there's a huge part of the Republican Party when, in my view, you know, you look at 97% of the climate scientists say that we have warming that's taking place in part due to human activity. It's the same level, as I understand it, of evidence that is that's, that supports and consensus in the scientific community that supports the link between things like smoking and lung cancer and that a prudent nation would decide to try and act on. You know, there's different, obviously, we can't know where the climate stuff is heading with any certainty over 50 or 100 years. But I think a prudent nation would take out some insurance against that. And I put out a carbon fee and dividend plan that I think is equal to the magnitude of the challenge. It used to be that uh, you think about climate. John McCain a few years ago was working with Democrats to try and do serious stuff on climate change. And now the entire Republican Party, as far as I can tell, because of a chunk of their funding base, won't acknowledge that you know, we face potential risk. We're the only country in the world where that's a debate. But we're the only one with the actual ability to really lead. And to me, that's, you know, that's a... But why don't the, the, uh, the debates, for example, climate change to me is science, you know, depends on evidence, science. Why aren't those debates about the evidence as opposed to it exists, it doesn't exist? They just go back and forth. No, there's no climate change. Yes, it is. It's from oil. It's not. It's from carbon dioxide. It's not. But they never talk, they never refer, like the Al Gore movie, referring to the evidence. Why don't they debate the data, the evidence? Why don't they have scientific debates at the political level? Why is there this reluctance to talk about the science? I think the short answer is the people who the science doesn't, the, the people for whom, or the special interests for whom acknowledging the evidence is against their financial self-interest, don't want the debate to take place on those terms. And they invest the millions of dollars to discredit that evidence or raise doubts. And that's been a, you know, a massive piece of what um, you know, some folks on the far right have been doing for the last 10 years. Uh, and that, that has to be combated, com combated uh, in different ways. And then that, 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 I think that problem gets compounded by the fact that for most Americans, uh, dealing with climate change, when you don't have a job or you don't have a job that pays a wage you can raise your family on right. or support your family on, that's right. going to be much more top of mind than 
a problem yeah. that you know some people are saying could come in 50 years. You're trying to put food on your family's table today, and so it's hard to get traction on those issues when there's so many bread and butter issues that are uh, that are closer. But there's a lot of people whose self-interest is to, is is to not acknowledge what the science. science is saying. Right. Yeah. Or to well, whether to not, but they don't even talk about it. whether right. it's medical. Like medical marijuana has been on the news. Um, what's that? The, it was on uh, CNN. Gupta did a whole thing on medical marijuana, and he. When did a like four-part series, he revert. He used to go on saying medical marijuana. There's no scientific value supporting the medicinal value, and then he completely did a 360, and he read all the research mm -hmm. and he he reversed his position on it. But here was the first time I actually saw somebody right. on the news using data, clinical right. trial data, you know, to to support the, his new position. Right. I was like, wow, why doesn't that happen all the time? Right. Why don't Newsmen and politicians rely on evidence when they take a public policy position. I cannot figure that out. That's, that's the one thing that's always disturbed me the most about debates is yes. that lots of opinions, but no in, in refer on, reference in, to in, the On evidence. the media's part, I do think a piece of it has to do with um, laziness. And to really? be charitable, it's deadlines. You know, yeah. we've, got to, we've got to go on the air. There's a thousand subjects that we cover. We, I've got, you know, if I'm a TV show, I've got three producers. Maybe one of them can look at this for 10 minutes before we go on uh, the air. Uh. Don't have it. That's why effective organizations that are trying to promote the evidence need to be savvy about how they feed that to the media in ways that are really useful and actionable, right. like for a segment that I have to put on in, you know, an hour. Politics is also about power and resources, and people who don't, people who don't like what the evidence shows doesn't mean they're going to say, oh, I guess the evidence shows that our income should go down by 50%. Somehow it doesn't work that way. And so there are always going to be people with a stake in uh, fighting what the evidence says. And we've seen that from, you know, Waxman and the tobacco companies to, I mean, I worry now. There's been interesting stuff, but I haven't, I haven't had a chance to look into it. My wife is always worried about this, about the effect of cell phone radiation on brain stuff. Right. I'm curious if you guys know what the, I mean, the more I, you know, my wife is always saying, do not do this with the cell phone. Use the wireless. We try and get our daughter to stop, and yet we never honor. We don't honor it enough. And you I'll know, send you all our evidence. I'll get you. The evidence like, well, what's your what's yeah. your bottom line? We haven't analyzed. It. We haven't done a formal project, but we can because I can I, quickly I, aggregate it. Because I think that's actually a major potential political issue. Because no one wants to face the idea. I mean, there's all these folks. I'm guessing there isn't any great studies to determine yes or no. We can. F that's in the category of there's evidence, but right. it's crappy evidence. You can't really make any conclusion. Because it, it is interesting that a lot of these guys who were the earliest cell phone adopters, who were high-profile people who died of brain tumors basically near their ears, guys like Robert Novak, the columnist, Senator Ted Kennedy mm. had a brain tumor here, Joe Biden's son. It's the kind wow. of people who were on the phone all the time and ended up having stuff. Um, so I'd actually like to learn more about that. Yeah. But I, I but I can't consume the raw evidence. I need a thoughtful right, person right, to tell right, me right. what the well, what, yeah. what I should, you know, what, what an evidence-based view right. is of where this is. And the truth is, it's a very um, I don't know if it fits into your I'm trying to think because it, it, it would get enormous press attention if you had a point of view on this that was evidence-based right. that fits with because uh, I don't know if it fits with your product really. Um, no, it, it does. I mean, we, we we will take any question that deals with public health. So thank you for letting me. Okay. Talk with your group. It's great to engage. And um, go to mattmillerforcongress.com. When patients and doctors say, show me the evidence, there will be true health care reform. Yeah. Dr. Todd, do you think we have, um, that, do we have a convert here, an evidence uh, supporter that's you know, a radio personality and someone who's going to be in Congress, hopefully, um, who is going to be fighting the evidence fight? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he obviously said the right things, and I hope now he will put it into practice. I hope he is a new breed of politicians or congressmen that uses evidence before he makes any decisions about public health policy or makes any decisions regarding you know, the health care crisis in America. I hope he keeps saying, show me the evidence and uses the evidence to make better decisions on our behalf. And I hope it's that easy to convert the rest of the world to use evidence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody, congressmen, senators, parents, you know, uh, uh, young adults, fathers, mothers, everybody, you know, should be using evidence before they make any decision, whether it's finance, real estate, travel, and especially vaccines. healthcare, vaccines, vaccines. You know. That's mm -hmm. a big one right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, I think that's the end of our podcast for today. For our next podcast, we're going to have, who's our guest going to be, Todd? We're going to have Dr. A.R., who's a prominent dermatologist in Century City who, who teaches and lectures on dermatology skin diseases. And we're going to ask him about his experiences in the healthcare industry and whether or not he uses evidence, if he thinks other doctors use evidence, all of that. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Check out our website, showmetheevidence.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, SMT Evidence on Twitter. And feel free to send us questions or challenge us. Uh, we welcome it. Tune in next episode. Thank you for listening.